That was beautiful. Thank you so much. Um, you have been an incredible source of inspiration for our community and certainly for our adult B'nai Mitzvah class. And tonight, I couldn't imagine a better um, kavanah to begin the evening in which we ask ourselves, how do we renew ourselves with God and with Torah and the Jewish community? And you provided that beautiful opening for us. Thank you. So I have been given the distinct honor of introducing Rabbi Chaim Seidlerfeller. You can see his or his bio in our source sheet. I'm not going to read the entire bio for you. The two main highlights from the bio, Rabbi Director Emeritus of UCLA Hillel, Senior Scholar of Shalom Hartman Institute of North America. But now I'm going to share how I know Rabbi Chaim. So when I walked into Rabbi Chaim, what was the name of the building? The, the religious center? The religious... The University Religious Conference Center at the bottom of Hillgard. So we we didn't have a Hillel building. There was no Hillel building. When you go on Hillgard, there was this this kind of two or three rooms that we inhabited, all of the Jewish students at UCLA. So I walked into Friday night services because that's what you do when your mom says it's Friday night, go to Shabbat services. You don't know anyone, go to Hillel. I walked into one of the rooms and I saw the gentleman in the back sitting and davening, his hands clasped together, his eyes closed, singing, davening, Yadin Nefesh. And I thought to myself, I have no idea what I'm getting into. <laughs> I'm from Orange County. <laughs> we don't pray like this. And what I didn't realize is that not only would I find one of the most spiritual experiences of my life, but I would find one of my Rebbe's. And Rabbi Chaim was one of the rabbis that encouraged me to um, apply to rabbinical school. And he knew me so well, he would invite a group of us to his home to celebrate Shabbat uh, on Saturday mornings. Hillel, Friday nights, Saturday mornings, we would go to Rabbi Chaim's home. And he said to me, you need to experience Jewish New York. And I said, but I'm a California girl. <laughs> I don't really do this New York <laughs> situation. And he said, no, you know, I know you, Nicole. I really want you to get out of your comfort zone and go experience what Torah is on the Upper West Side. Of, it's what you said. Do you <laughs> That's what you said. And I took him seriously, and I applied and decided to spend uh, five years at JTS, and I'm so thankful that I did. Um, and not only did he push me in a beautiful direction for my career and my rabbinate, I don't know if you remember this, and maybe you do this with other people, but Rabbi Chaim would continue throughout the years. He would leave me a message or we'd talk on the phone. And he'd always ask, you always ask, what are you studying? Nicole, Nicole, what are you studying? And I just want us to hear that question tonight because that should be the question we're asked of ourselves every Shavuot. What are you studying? How are you enriching your lives with Torah? How are you enriching your lives with a renewing relationship with God and the Jewish community. So I hope that you will help me welcome one of my Rebbe's who will help us study and open our hearts, minds, and souls tonight, Rabbi Chaim Seidlerfeller. I, I, you know, I don't know what to say. It's, it's, it's such a great pleasure to come here and, um, and to see Nicole as the rabbi. Uh, it's a fulfillment. It's a fulfillment of a dream. 
for, for both of us. And uh, thank you for your introduction and uh, for reminding me what I said. <laughs> um, it, 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 that happens later in life, you know. They quote back to you and they tell you these things <laughs> that you completely forgot that you said. And they actually sound wise, you know. <laughs> right. We'll carry on a conversation later. Um, so I, I, just, I just want to warn you, uh, and, and there are some people here, um, uh, uh, Sonia and Bruce, who just returned with us. We just returned from a trip to Poland. Um, and uh, I, I, I've actually been traveling for the last month. Um, I, I was in Portugal for, for, with a group, and then uh, we were in Jerba for a few days. We happened to be in Jerba uh, for Lagba Omer, which was our great, uh, that was the reason we went, uh, and that was the day of the incident. Uh, there was a terrorist incident at the synagogue in Jerba, um, and then we went to Poland. So we've had a month, a very, a very hectic month, uh, and I'm looking to be, sort of be revived by my teaching. Uh, I, actually, I, I do this in order, uh, you think that I'm doing this for your sake. I'm doing this to, to sort of um, revive myself a bit through, through learning tonight. I do want to start with a little um, a Shavuot teaching, uh, since uh, it seems to me that that's desirable. Um, there's a wonderful... Uh, Vort, we would say, a sort of a, uh, it's not, it's not Hasidic, it's, it's pre-Hasidic teaching, um, uh, medieval teaching, uh, uh, that has to do with the numbers of letters in the Aseret Debrot in the Ten Commandments. Um, and I, you know, I, I'm not sure which version, whether the one in Exodus or in Deuteronomy, but lo and behold, they add up to 620 letters. Uh, now, of course, uh, you tell me, if you have 620 letters, um, what would you say, at least part, the, the great part of those letters, what are they the equivalent of? Uh, what do they represent? 613, the, the 613 commandments, right? But then you're left with seven. And it turns out that the last seven letters of the, uh, of the Ten Commandments spell the two words, asher, Lereacha, unto your neighbor. And this is, you know, when you see something like this, it's really serious. The numbers are not relevant. The numbers are only a gimmick, right? They're a, they're a key to opening up an, inter, an understanding. And the understanding is fundamental. That asher lereacha, unto your neighbor, those seven letters are the foundation of the entire Torah. We heard that from Hillel, right? You all know that. That the Ve'ahafta Lareacha Kamocho from Rabbi Akiva. So I, I, want, I just want to emphasize this. We're going to be learning tonight, you know, Shavuot's celebration of Torah. I think we forget sometimes that really what it's all about is about us and our behavior. It's not about God. And in fact, God is more concerned with us, you know, and, and should be because we're the ones who need God's concern. And that's sort of the theme of what I want to get to this evening. All right, so Chag Sameach, and the, the author or the person who quotes this idea uh, is Isaiah Horowitz in a great work called Shnei Habrit, The Two Tablets of the Covenant. Uh, you can find some sections of it translated in a number of different places. There's a whole volume 
of his introduction that's translated in the classics of Western spirituality. I really, I mean, he, he was a great mystic, a great rabbi. He was a rabbi in, in Prague for a while. He, made, he went to live in Israel. He was a rabbi in Jerusalem and in Svat in the 16th century. Okay, but now we're getting to the 21st century and we're going to talk about the nature of God and we're in trouble because uh, the, the, I, the belief in God or relationship to God is not something that I think is very popular. In fact, a number of years ago, um, there were what I, what I tended to call, I think others called them the four horsemen who attacked God. Uh, I think uh, one of the, I mean, you know one of them intimately. Well, I, I forget his, he was a grad student at UCLA. Uh, Harris, yes, yeah, Sam Harris. Sam Harris. I actually, I, I tried to get to speak to him. Uh, you know, I, I had some messages to him, and then his, his agent called me. Uh, and his agent wanted to know that if he talked to me, would it help him sell books? So I couldn't help him. I couldn't help him in that regard. Because I actually, I, 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 I wanted to ball him out for talking, you know, because he, he really didn't know Judaism. Um, he knew the Bible a little bit, but he didn't know Judaism at all. But Harris and company, there was, um, what's his name? Uh, I, I'm, you know, my mind. Hitchens, Hitchens, and Dawkins, and Dennett, right? They, 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 they attack the idea of God. And they are, you know, one can understand their attacks on God. They saw a rising fundamentalism. And more, maybe more importantly, and this is an issue that we have to contend with today, and that is uh, religious people who are fighting against science. You know, it's a real threat. It's a threat to your lives. We don't, we don't know, understand that. But and to, all, to the extent that science has helped us extend our lives and deal with our illnesses, uh, it's endangered by people who struggle against the basics of science, including stem cell research, which is essential. So uh, I just want you to know that, that relig religion has been smeared by, not only by people who are anti-religious, but I think by religious people as well. Now, uh, however, I, I, I want to enter into this fray, and I, I want to tell us why God, or why a conversation about God, having some sense of God in our lives, is so vital. Uh, a young author, Jonathan Merritt, uh, wrote a book a few years ago called Learning to Speak God from Scratch, Why Sacred Words Are Vanishing and How We, how, how we Can Revive Them. And he came from the South. I think he was a a Baptist, and came to New York City, uh, sort of shocked uh, by that very city that I told uh, Nicole that she had to, uh, that, that she had to go uh, spend time in. Um, and and he, he, he saw uh, a, a sort of a change uh, over, over, over that, that surrounded him. Uh, people didn't use the word God at all, something that he was accustomed to from his own background. And he started to, to think about this. Um, and what he came up with was really interesting because he was able through a computer analysis uh, and through some work that were done, was done by some uh, psychologists to establish a correlation between the, a decline in words associated with moral virtue and a decline in the use of or re reference to God. I'll just give you some data. Uh, over the course of the 20th century, there was a 56% decline.
decline in words of compassion, in public articles, in, uh, in newspapers, um, in, uh, in published matter that could be searched, right? Uh, there was a 52% decline in humility words, and there was a 49% decline in gratitude words. So I, I can't establish a causal relationship between a decline in reference to God and a decline in using moral terms. But there is a correlation. And we ought to think about this because I think about the coarseness of language today, how people talk to one another, what happens when you turn on any public uh, media. Uh, it, it, it's, it's really difficult, I think, for people to uh, carry on uh, normal relationships in the manner in which, when you hear how people refer to one another. In some ways, it's, it's very scary. So I, I would hope that through our conversation tonight, uh, and I do want it to be a conversation, and I, I'm asking you that if you have questions, please raise your hand while I speak. I have a tendency to run out the time. So it's, it's better to ask me the questions when you have them. Um, that's, that's why it sort of guarantees that you'll, you'll, you'll be heard. Um, I'll, I'll, try, I'll try to provide. I actually thought that I had more time than, I mean, I saw that it was seven to nine. I didn't, I didn't realize that, what, the, what, what was happening. So, but I'll, I'll, I'll make it work. I'll make it work. You, you, you'll help me. Now, with, I, I'm, I have to stay here? Is that? Uh, no, I'm not gonna, okay, it's okay. I'll stand, I'll stand here, it's okay. It's hard for me to stand in one place. Uh, so, so I, but I, I do want to say that with regard to Jews, the issue of God is actually very serious, maybe more serious, if you look, upon, if you look at all the data regarding religion. So in, in studies that have been done in the last 20 years, so more or less, I mean, and, and there is a change in percentage of a few percentage points, but basically, I operate with the following. It was, it was a Pew study, maybe the one in 2013 or so on. So, or a little earlier, because it was religion in general. So uh, regarding this statement, religion is very important. 26% of Jews say religion is very important. Whereas regarding all Americans, 56% say religion is very important. We are... No question, the least religious religious group in America. All right? The least religious religious group in America. Right? And now why is that? So one reason, and, and that means uh, in, my, in my mind here in terms of our talk tonight, we're less le likely to talk about God. Maybe we measure least religious because we don't measure up to the normal data analysis that, that are provided from a Christian perspective, perhaps. But, you know, I, I, I just want to be honest. I grew up in, the ortho, in an Orthodox community. I still identify uh, mod, as modern Orthodox in these days, or whether, whether open Orthodox, I, I, something or other like that. Um, but traditional, I'm a traditional Jew. Um, and I can tell you from my experience that I grew up without much God and without much what I would call religiosity, because we were committed to Torah or mitzvot. What's Judaism? Judaism is about study, intellectual activity, achievement, right? success uh, with the intellect, 
and performance. And we always sort of pride ourselves that Judaism is not about belief and that you can be a good Jew without God. In fact, uh, some years ago, I, I, I once clipped this in the, in the Jewish Week, there was an advert that was taken out by a, a Wexner Foundation graduate, uh, a new Ten Commandments. And the second of the Ten Commandments was, you don't have to believe in God. I didn't realize that that was a commandment. I mean, it, it may be a fact that people don't believe, but it's a commandment that you don't have to believe in God. So, ad kedekach, and you know that there are all sorts of Jewish, uh, um, I, don't, I don't know what to call them, they're on the radio, some of these guys, and they, they mouth this idea all the time, that Judaism is about actions and God is not relevant, basically. You don't have to believe in God. A very influential talk show host on the radio says these things all the time. So that's a real problem, number one. Number two, why, why do we have an absence? So num the first reason is because we emphasize intellectual achievement and performance and not the inner life. Number two, from, of the previous generation, I'm not talking about my generation necessarily, but our teachers and our teachers' teachers, uh, as the rabbis that we studied from, they were impaired, or they raised a generation of impaired rabbis because the teachers didn't open themselves up to their students and didn't share with the students their own theological struggles. Wouldn't you imagine that some of your teachers had problems believing in God? Wouldn't it be important, be important for your religious instructor to take you on the journey and share with you their own dark nights where they were struggling with faith or with whatever belief is all about? How would they expect you to be able to transmit that to a congregation if the students never heard it from their own teachers? So in that generation, you know, you've heard of the N-word or all that. There was the G-word, right? And that was a word that was not spoken by rabbis in the synagogue or talked about or, or taught, the God word. And then finally, what I want to say is that the reason that Jews have difficulty uh, or, uh, uh, with, with God or a, a less likelihood uh, to be uh, people who, uh, who actively uh, are, are engaged in, in spiritual pursuits uh, has to do with, with two other factors, two contemporary factors that are very weighty. Uh, one is uh, our, um, I don't know how to say this, our embrace of the pursuit of materialistic gain. Uh, I, I noted some years ago there were, in an American history book that I was reading um, that at the turn of the 20th century, let's say in the teens of the last century, Lord and Taylor used to take out uh, ads in the Yiddish paper on Friday uh, advertising special Shabbos sales. <laughs> Literally. Right? That, I, I, I've seen the advertisements. So... So we replaced Shabbos with shopping, all right? But you know, I mean, but you understand that, that the most respected achievement in Jewish life is material achievement. We award people, we honor people for what they've achieved materially. How many people do we award for their spiritual lives and for modeling spirituality? All right? 
So that's one dimension. And so a life that's committed to material gain, right, does not leave much room for, or doesn't know even, how to nurture the spiritual dimension. And finally, there's another aspect of our 20th century, 21st century existence that's overwhelming, and that's nationalism. And we are a people that has actively, for good reasons and with some really very positive results, placed all our eggs in the basket of nationalism and, uh, and, and statism and what that means to us as Jewish people. Just an example from the Orthodox community, from which I stem. Right? In the Pew study, there was a, a, a very, an interesting odd statistic that my friends say is simply um, misrepresented, but anyway, I'll quote it. Right? I'm not a sociologist, so I don't have to be accurate here in, in my analysis. Uh, but in the representation in the Pew study, it indicated that 78% of modern Orthodox Jews believe in God with absolute certainty. But 90% of modern Orthodox Jews believe with certainty that Israel was given to Jews by God. Do you understand what I, you understand the, the discrepancy? In other words, 90% think God gave the Jewish people the state of Israel. Only 78% believe in God. So more people, more Orthodox Jews believe in Israel than they do in God. And the, and, and the point is here, a, a sort of a self-critical reflection. The holiest moment in the modern Orthodox prayer service, anybody know? Can anybody, I don't know if you frequent the modern Orthodox synagogue, is... Well, you would hope maybe the Amidah, maybe the reading of the Torah. The, 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 anyone guess? The prayer for the state of Israel. Because that's when everybody is quiet. And everybody stands, stands quietly. So, so there's been a, 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 a sort of a, 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 a transformation that's occurred in terms of a hierarchy of values in Jewish life. And it seems to me that um, that religion in the religious community isn't valued. Sort of what we would call religiosity, uh, a relationship with God, which I'll come to in a moment. In fact, within the Orthodox community, um, it, it led to a very interesting analysis uh, by a, a, a leading a member of the community, that, uh, an article in commentary about, it must be m maybe 10 years ago already, uh, called Social Orthodoxy, a new phenomenon. Orthodox Jews who are totally observant, who are not really religiously committed, but maintain their orthodoxy because it, 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 it nurtures, uh, it's conducive to social cohesion and to maintaining identity and sustaining the community and the family. And so religion then has a functional value within this setting to preserve Judaism. And indeed, Orthodox Jews are successful in that regard much more successful than the other groups of Jews today, which is something that we here should, should take very seriously. What's happening to liberal Judaism? But that's another question. Okay. You won't invite me back for that one, I don't think. <laughs> okay. Now, just a, a few more words. What, why, why is this a problem, this absence of God and religiosity? So if indeed the Judaism is a, a what, what distinguishes Judaism is a commitment to the study of Torah, and performance of mitzvot, then we have to ask, even though there may be many answers, 
What does mitzvah mean, commandment, without God? How do you think about mitzvah? I mean, there are ways of, there are ways of thinking about it, but at least you have to deal with this question. All right, so that's one thing. Secondly, and this I think is very important, part of the revolution, theological revolution of Judaism is the gradual abstraction of the God idea. Uh, between the book of Exodus, just uh, even though this is not necessarily a historical uh, issue, but, but we can see some, uh, at least uh, the way the Torah is laid out, it suggests to us the development. Between the book of Exodus, which says, and you will build me a tabernacle, and I will dwell within it, and meaning God will dwell within the tabernacle, right? Uh, the, and the book of Deuteronomy, where it says, the place where my name will dwell. We have a gradual process of the, the substance of God being transformed from the being to the name. That's a process of abstraction. That's very helpful in terms of understanding the refinement of religion so that religion itself is not engaged in a type of materialism. Without this notion or these teachings about God, all we're left with is the material realm and its seductions, right? I'll take your question in a moment. And we, we're, we're bereft of the tension between spirit and matter, and I think that, that which is essential. And finally, I'll take your question in a, mo in a moment. Uh, without God, then ethics are only personal. And, and, and we know what type of world that, will, that results in. If ethics are only personal, we can come, we'll discuss this a little bit more, I think, a little bit later. Your question, please. Yes. Doesn't this process of abstraction start with the golden calf? Golden calf, what? The golden calf is sort of the opposite. The, the what, what I'm suggesting is that um, God was willing to hang out with the Jewish people until they went off the rails. And then this process that from there. Yeah, all right. So, right. so what happens... If, 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 I'm right. going to repeat the yeah, question. Right. If I, I mean, if I understand correctly, the process of abstraction begins after the golden calf. That's what you're, that's what you're suggesting. But so one of the things that we do, uh, uh, we do think is that, at least the way the Torah is constructed, that the building of the tabernacle uh, might have been a concession to the golden calf. So you have, you want, you want a golden calf, all right, so in fact, I, I will allow you to have a place where you can begin to think about my presence, all right? So, so there is this notion of taking God's presence with them, right? But what I'm saying is that you're right, as, as, the, as the, the journey through the desert, right, there's a, a further refinement because, you know, you can imagine, think about this, the way, it, the way it's structured out, that in the desert, we really have the opportunity to focus on the non-material dimensions of existence, both in terms of our own selves right, and the divine, right? So, and and, and, and that, that's why throughout history uh, that people seeking a spiritual connection actually go to the desert. The hermit goes to the desert. And, that, and you have, uh, since, since it's uh, Shavuot night and, and, and people uh, have been reading this, uh, this uh, uh, the Torah.com had an article on the therapeutic. There was a, a group 
of uh, Jewish uh, spiritualists uh, in Philonic uh, e Egypt, the first century. And they were basically um, a, an ascetic sect of Jews. Uh, they didn't. They, they didn't. They, they didn't uh, survive too long. But neither. But but neither did the whole community in Alexandria. That's another question. All right. But but it's an interesting point that you make about the process and what happens. Okay. So how do we move on? And that's by the way apart from the issue that we all have, and that is it's hard for us moderns to imagine that God intervenes in history. I, I would challenge you to, uh, to be able to represent to me some, I mean, I don't, I don't know if we definitive uh, example of God acting in history. Um, it's really foreign. That language is foreign to us. There's a, what's his name? James Kugel wrote a book about um, the psychological uh, development of the God idea from antiquity to modernity and how we think about God in our lives. So it seems to me that we need to be able to develop a new language um, and that the old framework simply is not effective and doesn't, and doesn't work for us. So let's start learning together. Okay, turn to your sheets. Um, you all have texts. Uh, I, need, I need one of them. Uh, uh, I think I have one. 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 So the first text is on, uh, is on page one. Um, it's based on a, an interpretation of uh, uh, Moses' encounter with God uh, at the mountain, um, and, uh, Mo and Moses wants, begs God, uh, importunes God to know God, know God's glory. And God says, you cannot know me. You will only see me from behind. You'll see my back. You'll not see my face. So the comments here were written by a very interesting uh, 20th century biblical scholar who taught actually in Hebrew Union College in New York City. His name was Arnold Ehrlich. Um, his, his name in Hebrew was Shabtai Ben Yom Tov. And what I, I always quote his Hebrew name because he added on the phrase Ibn Bodeid. He was a rather lonely character. Uh, and uh, a, a little, you know, a, a difficult character, but very insightful at times. And this is one of the times uh, where he writes as follows. So commenting on this verse, he says, let me just get my text. Oh, my, she my sheet just fell. If these words have a hidden meaning, I know it not since I have not apprehended God's secrets. So first of all, he says, this is not a mystical text. We can understand what this text is all about. It's not something remote. What I see in them is reflected in the words of a German sage. The German sage was Lessing, who wrote, if I were standing before God and truth was held in God's right hand and the search for truth in God's left, and God said, choose one of them, I would choose the search for the truth. It's, this is one of, I think, a really profound and great teaching. Why, why, why would he choose the search for truth and the search for God rather than the knowledge of God with certainty? Why, why? He's going to explain, but think, I, I want you to think. What would happen to us if we knew God? What would happen? You wouldn't be? I, I, you know, I, I have trouble hearing, so. 
Okay, all right. But I won't, I won't go to that. It wouldn't be a mystery. What about ourselves? What would, if we knew God, what would be, what would, what would, what would be, what would happen to us? Um, we would. God, we would. We cannot. Sorry. We cannot know God and, and be human. Uh, we would not know who we are as a people. We would not know who we are as a people. All right, we wouldn't know who we are as a people, but we, right, we wouldn't know who we are as humans. If you're there at the end, there's nothing to do any longer. Life is all about uncovering and discovering and growing. It's about struggle. I'm sorry to tell you, it was a blessing that we left the Garden of Eden. That was a blessing. It's presented as a punishment so that we can preserve the memory, the memory that once we were, we were at one with all so that we can quest for that oneness in the world where there is no oneness. So we have a memory of that oneness. It's presented as a punishment because indeed, it's, we, are, we are lesser than the oneness of being. But in terms of our humanity, we couldn't be human if we remained in the garden, if we were in God's presence all the time. We have to be questing. We can't know for certain. All right, so that's, maybe that's the basic principle that I should transmit tonight. It's not going to help us know, uh, uh, progress, but at least it'll give us a, 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 a baseline. Uh, let's read a little bit more. Uh, because it's, it, it, I mean, he, he says it all. A similar teaching is articulated in the Mishnah. Better one period of teshuva, that's right, of, of return, of repentance, of repair, and good deeds in this world than all of life in the world to come, right? Because all of life in the world to come is spent without any growth, without any change, at least in, the, in this understanding of the world to come. You, you, we live as human beings because there's an opportunity, because we don't know yet what we can be. And there's more that we can do. And we can actually have an impact on the world around us and make it better. Right? We don't accept a, sort of a, a fatalistic under, you know, notion that it's all, it's all set. They taught this because one who arrives at the truth and attains eternity rests from his or her toil, since he or she has arrived at his or her destination. We're there at the end. There's no longer, there's no growth any longer. There's no change. There, there's no, and, and, and by the way, and we become complacent because we think we're there, right? We need to know, we need the tension of knowing that it, we're not there yet. But one who strives towards something lofty and exalted, his or her effort is more rewarding than the reward itself. So too is it with regard to knowledge of God. It's the process, right, and God's ways. For if a human being attains the highest level above which there is none, what will he or she do afterwards? Therefore, no human can see God's face, and God reveals only God's back to the devout in order that they continually search and probe, drawing inferences with regard to God's face from observing God's back and toiling all their life to know God in the most complete and clear manner. Their toil is their reward. I mean, this is, I think this is a wonderful text that should be taught to, it should be taught to our children in schools. They should know that one of the secrets of Judaism, 
A really important secret is you can't know God. And there's a certain arrogance, and we'll get to this, there's an arrogance to those who claim to know God with a, with a degree of certainty. And there are consequences to that arrogance. We'll, we'll see as, as I try to develop this idea. So this, uh, th this uns what, you know, the uncertainty principle of Jewish thought is vital. I mean, what an interesting religion we have. You can't know God, right? However, this whole talk is about what does God mean in our lives? So the first, well, I mean, I'm, I'm going to say a few more words about this, but maybe one of the things that God mean, means in our lives is a negative, is a negative. Now, I can maybe prove this to you. How? What's the first commandment of the, of the Ten Commandments? What's that? Uh, well, uh, Maybe, but that that appears to be a statement. I mean, no, I I could work it I could work it out as this commandment. But all right, but it's a it's a statement. So if that's a statement, what becomes the first commandment? No you shall have no other gods. So the first commandment of the commandments is there are no other gods. What does that mean? I w I'm going to translate it. Uh, give it my own translation. It means you are not God. You don't know who God is. I don't know who God is. I can't know with certainty. We just read that in Ehrlich. What I do know is you're not God and I'm not God. And that the minimal stance of Judaism in the world is one that we, we reject the notion that someone can know God with certainty. We, we, we progress with a certain degree of doubt of searching, of journey, it's essential to our, to, our, to our religious tradition in terms of how we develop. Question. I don't know what to tell you. In other words, <laughs> All right, yes, all right, I'll say this. All right, let me say this. Since you raised it, then I, I, I would say that the Messiah presents a similar problem because the Messiah suggests a human being with divine characteristics, at least in the popular mind. And I think that essentially, the, at least in, as a person, the Messiah, Messianic idea is at base idolatrous because it attributes ultimacy to a human, if, if, if people see it that way. I would, I, I, I would be able to have a conversation with you about the, the messianic time, what, what humans can do to create that. And, and in light of Ehrlich, you, ha you already know that the Messiah is something we are searching for, we are questing for, we are trying to bring it. It's only people who are impatient who are, in some ways, I, I'm sorry to use the term, childlike, who feel compelled to declare that the Messiah is here. You gotta learn how to wait. Judaism is about waiting. Our friend Leon Wieseltier wrote an article and spoke something called a passion for waiting we have. Because waiting is not, uh, is not uh, uh, what do you call it, uh, 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 impassive. Waiting is active. 
We believe in active waiting, in doing as we're waiting, in changing as we're waiting, in improving as we're waiting, but never declaring that we're there. That's the idea. It's always something that we're questing for. And that, that, that keeps us human. It keeps us, it maintains, it, it helps us maintain a degree of sobriety in our religious, in our religion. Because people who are passionate about religion sometimes imagine things about themselves and God and about the world around them that can lead to a lot of trouble and difficulty. So the tradition imposes upon us our humanity. I mean, we are blessed and cursed with this humanity that doesn't allow us to assert perfection. Yes. Yeah, you're not getting me there now. <laughs> I mean, but that's part, in other words, let, why don't you see it in, in the same terms, the world to come? It, is a, it, it, it isn't here yet, right? It's something that we're trying to, uh, right, to build towards, or it's another dimension of being. I mean, it, but it's not, it's not part of our discussion tonight, okay? Okay, thank you. Okay, all right. So, so the first, so in our attempt, to tease out a notion of God. So I, I want to say that the first dimension of, of God, as I would present it to us, is God as a limiting factor. God means we're, we are not God. That's primarily how I would understand that. The, uh, the attempt by any human being to assert that they're divine or have divine qualities is the most aggressive uh, form and crass form of idolatry. And it, uh, we only know, right, all of us know, historically, kings declare themselves to rule by divine right. There are officers of government alive today who claim some sort of infallibility or divinity. We've even had one here in the United States. No, I mean, you have, to, you have to shudder. I mean that. This is not politics. This is humanity. This is the basic of Judaism. You have to shudder when a human being begins to talk that way. That's evil personified. Right? And, it, and, and it's, it's sort of basic to what Judaism is all about. So I, I think we have to really take a hard look at ourselves and what's happened to us. Because the first principle is to know no human being is perfect. No human being is godlike. And the point of God is to induce a sense of humility. How often do we as Jews talk about the value of humility? So the basic, base, all right, so the basic understanding of God, num dimension number one, is God that limits as a limiting factor and induces within us a sense of our own humility. It helps us, it, it assists us to build character. God is about building human character, that humans should know that they're not God. And every one of us can use that, all of us. Uh, all, all the time. That's the traditional name of God that we call Elohim. Of course, Elohim uh, stands for the judge, the power, the dimension of God that's beyond. And we can't measure up to that at all. Once we know, once we know that we're not God, then we have an opportunity to do what? Once we know that we're not God, 
then we have an opportunity to develop our Selim Elohim, the image of God within us, and become God-like. Once we know that we're not God, we can aspire to become God-like. So God is the God of limitation and the God of aspiration. I want to tell you a little bit more about this Selim Elohim. What, what does the image of God mean? What does the image of God mean? So the, there's a Mishnah that talks about the image of God. And the, image of, and the Mishnah in Sanhedrin teaches us the following. Number one, it teaches us radical, I, I didn't print it. I don't think I printed it. Radical equality. All, all human beings are created in the image of God. Right? That's principle number one. Number two, all human beings have an a inherent, uh, uh, ultimate, uh, 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 intense, intense value, right? Because all human, all human beings have infinite value reflecting the divine with, uh, potential within them. The Mishnah then goes forward and says, the image of God that each one of us carries also, also promotes the idea of what Jonathan Sachs called the dignity of difference. Because all of us carry the image of God and all of us are different from one another. So that's a notion that most people don't respect. That difference is built in to humanity and we need to be able to respect and learn about each other's difference. And finally, if all of us carry an image of God, it, it, it suggests the notion that we can unite around something that we share in common. We're not only equal, we not only have infinite value, but we should come together in a sense of oneness. So the second dimension of God is uh, this idea of developing our, our, our image of God. What does that mean? What does that mean? It means that in the world that we live, remember I said that I haven't noticed that God is intervening in history, in our history lately? So how do we see God in the world? How can we see God in the world if God is not intervening in history? Louder? Through human behavior. We carry God's image. God depends on us. God's not acting, but God's image can act in the world. So we become God's agents. Let me illustrate that to you with two uh, two stories. Uh, one, we had a colleague who was uh, diagnosed with terminal cancer, uh, who was a rabbi in San Diego. He survived, thank God. Marty Levin. His, he was in the hospital, and his five-year-old son came to see him. And uh, his five-year-old son said, Abba, where is God? Abba had the presence of mind to tell his son the following. You see that guy who comes every week to play the guitar in the pediatric cancer ward next door? You know all those people who come home to our house in, in, in San Diego to help your mother and to do your homework with you and help out? You know all those scientists at Scripps who are working on a cure for cancer, from this can for my cancer? Right? That's where God is. That's story number one. Story number two. Together, we're together with David Hartman at Brandeis Camp with a group, 
and a Shabbaton. It's Shabbos after lunch, and Hartman says, it's time to bench, time to say Birkat HaMazon after the meal. We start to sing, and all of a sudden, and in and, and, and Hartman's inevitable, and inimitable uh, uh, style, he yells out, stop! And he says, and then he asks, what's the, what's the blessing, what's the blessing that you recite? What's the last word in the blessing of the first paragraph of the Gracie After Meals? What's the, what's the blessing? Again? That's the last word, the last phrase. Hazan, which means? Who feeds everybody. What do you think Hartman said? If you knew Hartman. You're a bunch of liars. God isn't feeding everybody. How can you say that in the name of God? So he then explained, it doesn't mean that God, we expect God to provide food for everybody. Hazan and Hakol is not a description that relates to God, but it's an imperative that relates to us. And that we have the responsibility to make sure that God is feeding everybody because we have to, we have to divide the resources in such a way that people have what to eat. So the age, we are the agents of God and God relies on us to fulfill God's mission in the world. And that's how God's presence, that's how God becomes present. I'll show you in a moment. We still have a few minutes. Yes. It's a partnership. Okay. All right. Okay. So just to summarize what we have. So this, by the way, this is, this is, the ex this is an elaboration on the other name of God, of the two, the two central names. Elohim is a judgment, right? God's power. And yud Hey vav Hey, right? Now, what is yud Hey vav Hey? It's, we think, maybe a contraction of a to-be verb, haya, hove, yeye, haya, weveye, right? Together it means a constant presence. How does God, how is God a constant presence? Or maybe I should translate it as, as a becoming. Because that presence is constant because we are obligated to constantly reflect God in our behavior. And in that way, God is constantly becoming or entering into the world. You'll see in a moment what I'm getting at because I'm going to refer to uh, a Hasidic teaching that will sum it up. So the, these two dimensions, the dimension that God has a limitation, Elohim, a judgment, humbling us. We say hallelujah, not because God needs our praise, but we need, we need to praise God. Because if we don't praise God, what we're going to wind up doing is what we do all the time. We praise ourselves. Or we praise our institutions, which is another favorite activity of ours. You know, and, and, and we say hallelujah, not for, not for God, but for ourselves, so that we know that we are, we are not it. There's something beyond us. So there's the Elohim, the judgment the limitation, and there's a yurhei vavhei, which is the personal, and which uh, suggests that we have to nurture the godlike quality that's within us. Just look at, look at the, uh, uh, what page is it in your sheets? If you look at the next to last page in your sheets, you'll see, the, you'll see a, a diagram of the divine human. Do you see that on page seven? 
You all see that? So what is that? What is that? That's the four-letter name of God in the image of a human being. All right, so that's, that's the point. We have to embody God, reflect God, so that people, people who see us, people who see us will say, there's an image of God. That's what's called, the rabbis call Kiddush Hashem, sanctification of God. Sanctification of God is not martyrdom. It's not dying for God. Sanctification of God is that people who see you will say, that's someone who reflects divinity in their behavior. And that they carry the tradition in such a way that it brings, it brings blessing. It brings blessing into the world. So the two dimensions of God, as I said to summarize, reflect a sense of afsut, nothingness, and romamut, grandiosity, the idea of God as diminishing and elevating, bringing us to nothingness and to majesty, to self-negation and to self-affirmation. Elohim as the God of limitation and yud hey vav hey as the God of aspiration. Now, there's a final text. We're not going to be able to read it. Let me tell you what it says. It's a Hasidic text. It was written by Rabbi Kolonimus Kalman Epstein, who wrote a work called Ma'or Vashemesh, The Illumination and the Sun. He was a rabbi in Krakow in the early part of the 19th century. He was a student of the Jose of Lublin, of the great Hasidic masters of the second generation, Elimelech of Lashens. And he was bothered by a classic question and, and numerous questions. What did God mean when Moses petitioned him to know God's name when Moses first met God? Because Moses said, I'm going to go back to the people and say, God wants you to leave Egypt. They're going to say, who's this God? What's his name? So God says, what is God's answer? What is Moses supposed to tell the people? You remember the phrase? Eheyeh, asher, eheyeh. So think to yourselves, what kind of an answer is that? You know, uh, it literally, it means, well, it could, in, 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 in many Bibles, it says, I am that I am. I find that to be mostly in the Christian Bibles. In the JPS, it offers us the possibility, I will be what I will be. But that's not, but that's not a great answer, right? You know, people say, why should we follow you, Moses? Who told you this? Moses, oh, God told me. What's his name? I will be that I will be. No? All right. Uh, would you go? Uh, 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 and now, and furthermore, furthermore, he asks, you know, the as I said, the classic Hasidic question is, God then repeats and says, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. Why repeat the God of three times? So Moar Shemesh says the following, that every one of our ancestors had a God idea that they inherited from their parents, or what I would say, the classic God idea, plus the God idea that they nurtured on their own, that reflected an essence within themselves. Each one of us has an essence. Each one of us has a perception of the world, a spiritual perception, if we allow ourselves, all right, to, to develop that. Each one of us comes from a different angle. And the point of the God of, the God of was to teach us that every one of us inherits a teaching from our tradition and every one of us is obligated, obligated to try to develop their own sense and their own understanding and to bring that to bear. Be, and that, and, and as a result, as a result, God is always becoming because God is never fixed, right? 
Because the way we perceive, there is a fixed idea of God, that's the tradition. But there is the dynamic idea of God that's a consequence of our own encounter, of our own spirit that we introduce, that we bring to bear on this idea of God, that we nurture, that we see as a special quality within ourselves. And the potential there is for infinite possibilities. I will be what I will be. God is not, is not yet. God is becoming. The message to the children of Israel, that at least in the Hasidic mind was, I am bringing you freedom because it's the freedom to think, to develop, to, to renew yourselves, to always develop a new quality, to understand that life is not limited. Even at, even at an older point in your life, you have the possibility of growing and thinking of a new angle, a new understanding, a new quality that you want to bring to bear on your life, on your understanding of your obligations to the world. And in doing so, what you're doing is you're growing God's presence in the world. You, you human beings, you bring God into the world. You nurture God. The critical aspect is God is not finished. The God project isn't finished. It's, it's right. It's, it, it's a work in progress. And we are the engineers in some ways of this, of this task of unfolding, of unfolding God's presence into the world. In Egypt, in Egypt, there was only one person who knew with certainty who God was. Who was that person? Pharaoh. That's what I wanted you to know. That's the key. Because Pharaoh who knew God with certainty, right, he then perpetrated in our story the great evil because he was God. He could do whatever he wanted with all the resources, with all the people. He ruled absolutely. And the God idea, in part, in part, very important part, is an effort to make sure that no human being can rule absolutely. It's a very important, I mean, uh, Nicole asked me not to talk politics tonight. You know. <laughs> so I, as long as you said that I told you. Yeah, okay. That's why I said it. Okay. So, so I'm not talking, po I'm not talking, I'm not talking politics. I'm talking worldview. Because it has nothing to do with any individual. It has to do with how we look at the world. Right? We are Jews. Jews are iconoclasts. We tear down idols. And human beings who assert their own divinity are setting themselves up as idols. That's the lesson in Egypt. So Pharaoh was the only one who knew for sure. Certainty, in, in some ways, the religious teaching of Ehrlich and, that we, and, and, and the result of what I'm presenting here is that the assertion that we know God with certainty is a form of idolatry. What is, what is necessary religiously is what a friend of mine calls uh, the development of epistemic modesty in terms of the world of our knowledge to, be, to, to understand that our knowledge itself is limited. We're human beings. We have to be modest about our claims, about what we know. We, our religion is, uh, religion is there to nurture a sense of modesty within us. Remember, it's about our humanity much more than it is about God. God is concerned with our humanity. 
So God is also a source of freedom, as I understand, because God is constantly unfolding. And what we need are teachers who can teach our children this type of language so that they understand that knowledge is always, knowledge is always growing. You know, I, 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 I work at a university, I've worked at a university, you know, for most of my life, uh, for 45 years already. And we talk about, sometimes about professors being masters. I'm not sure that that's a good thing. You know, they know a lot, but their task is to be able to, to convince us and to, uh, uh, to stimulate, to motivate us to learn and also to reveal to us what they don't know. One of my greatest lessons in educational lessons was an experience that I had with Rabbi Soloveitchik, my teacher, where at the end of a, a two-hour shiur, which was uh, the de rigueur, daily two hours, a student raised his hand and a student um, asked a question and all of a sudden he sat at his desk, he would always be sitting at his desk, he, 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 uh, uh, he closed the book that was in front of him and he started to talk to himself and he was arguing back and forth. All of a sudden, he stuck his hand into his pocket and he pulled out a sheaf of papers. We never knew that he had notes, but clearly he prepared and he was very dramatic and he crossed out one page, second page, third page. He opened up the book, the Talmud, banged on the table and he pronounced, we will start all over again. That's a teacher. That's a teacher. That's a master. He didn't, he, the, the student asked the question, the student was right. How many teachers have we had who've been able to respond that way? That's one of the great lessons in life. Because it, oh, it, it allows you to understand that if the master, the master does that, then we certainly have to be seeking. We're on this journey, remember, it's a process, all those words that I've used. All right. So, finally, and, uh, and uh, there will be some time maybe even for some questions. I want you to take a look at a couple of uh, a proof texts. Page five, look at the bottom of page five. Yes, I have two, two proof texts that I want to share with you. Proof text number five at the bottom of the page. It's a midrash on a verse in, um, in Isaiah. Va'atem edai nu'um Adonai. You are my witnesses, proclaims God, said, saith God, said the Lord. Va'ani el, and I am God. Kishatem edai, when you are my witnesses, ani el, I am the Lord, I am God. Ukshe'enatem edai, when you're not witnesses, ain ani el, I am not God. Kivyachol, I mean, it's not there, but as if to say. All right, you understand? The Midrash says, we are responsible for God's presence in the world. Only if we attest to God. How do we attest? How do we testify to God, to be God being God? By acting in a God-like way. If we, are God's, if we are witnesses in the world to God, then there's a God. If we are not witnesses to God, then God is not present. It doesn't mean there's no God. It means God is not present. We are responsible for God's presence. Two, turn to the top of page seven, source number eight. A wonderful, a wonderful Talmudic passage 
that some of you may be familiar with. It has to do with our recitation of the 13 attributes on, uh, on, on the high holidays. Adonai, Adonai, El, Rachum, Bechanun, Erech, Apayim, right? God, oh God, compassion. You know this, the 13 attributes that, that we, uh, of the divine. So the, the Gemara says as follows. And the Lord passed, before, by, be, passed by before him and proclaimed. This is the verse in the Torah um, re, regarding Moses in chapter 33 in, in Exodus. Rabbi Yochanan said, were it not written in the text, it would be impossible for us to say such a thing. This verse teaches us that the Holy One, blessed be God, drew his robe round him like the reader of a congregation and showed Moses the order of prayer. He said to him, whenever Israel sin, let them carry out this service before me and I will forgive them. All right. So most of us grew up thinking that what this Gemara means is that on Yom Kippur, we recite again and again the 13 attributes, and by doing so, we're forgiven, right? Because that's what it says, let them carry out this service. But maybe that's not what it means. In the, in the text, what it says, call Zman Shi Yisrael Chotin, as long as Israel sins, Ya'asu lefanai kesedet hazeh. Let them perform this order, which means the reason we recite and sing again and again and again that God is compassionate, that God is patient, and all of that is not to describe God, but so that we will embody those virtues and carry them into the world. Yom Kippur is basic training for how to be a human being. So you have to focus on what human traits you need. You need forgiveness. So you talk about slicha. Teshuva is very important, obviously. Look at all these elements. They're all, you, look, at the, look at the list of the alchets, of the sins that we declare. They're all, almost all of them, I mean, maybe all of them, are human, are, 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 are violations between human beings. It, it doesn't say, for the sin of not keeping kosher, or for the sin of not keeping Shabbos. And I'm not, I'm not trying to urge you not to keep kosher and not to keep Shabbos. I mean, that's not the point. The point is that the focus is on our humanity. And the one day, the holiest day of the year, where we encounter God's presence in the Holy of Holies is about a lesson in how we should internalize the God-like qualities and then take them into the world and make the world a better place. That's why we can blow the shofar at the end of the day because we're ready for some renewal, the renewal of having gone through this exercise. But it's a hard lesson, right? We have to work at it. It doesn't happen easily. We're only human. We're bound to fail. And we, ha and we, don't, and we don't get all messed up because, and, and create a new religion because we're bound to fail. I mean, we deal with it, right? We deal with it. And we try to repair, to repair, to grow, to change. And so the sources, so this, that you might, you might think, this novel notion that we are God's agents and that we are responsible for God's image in the world, it's actually one that was articulated 2,000 years ago by some of the rabbis in the Talmud. I wouldn't claim by all of them, but you certainly, there are enough sources, I can, and I have other sources that I could bring to bear to demonstrate that the rabbis were themselves struggling with what God meant. Already then, 
it's true, they, they still held on to, to a more classical idea of God's presence in history, but they too were personalizing. I mean, they, were, they, they, they too were trying to, they, they understood, and they weren't trying to deceive us and, try, and compelling us to believe in things that are unreasonable. I think that that's very important. Religion can't work if it requires that we believe in things that are unreasonable. That's another religious tradition that says, I believe because it is absurd. We don't say that. We reject that idea. I think, I hope, I hope, most of us. Okay, any questions? I mean, we have a few minutes, any questions? I do want to conclude. Uh, uh. I'll, I'll accept the fact that, that you Accept everything that I've said. <laughs> okay. No, so, so just to summarize, so what I've said is that there are two dimensions to the God idea. The first dimension is we're not God, and that God is about humbling. And once, we, once we're able to accept that idea that we can't be God, then we, we must, we must attempt to realize the Tzalem Elohim, the image of God with which we are endowed, the quality that we have to be God-like in our relation with others the quality that we have to really, uh, to, to, to draw out the, the soul of another human being, to connect to the soul of another human being, the quality that we have to bring love, to bring love into the world, right? We're talking about Shavuot. God gave the Torah as an act of love. You know, that, you know what Mizrahim, what Eastern Jews do when they open the Aron Kodesh on Shavuot morning? You know what they do. You know what they do? They read a marriage contract. There's a ketuva. Of course, the Torah, giving of the Torah was an act of love because the Torah itself is intended to promote love within us, between us, and in the world around us. That's what we need to be teaching, the Torah of love. Right? All right. So just to conclude, and here... My friend Art Green quotes Heschel, and he writes as follows. From Heschel, I learned what it means to live as the image of God. His most important teaching to me, one that stays with me every day, concerns the second of the Ten Commandments. Why are we forbidden to make images of God, Heschel asked. It is not because God is beyond all images, so that no image could possibly depict God. If that were the case, he argued, images would merely be harmless, right? So, right? That's not why. In other words, you can't be forbidden to make an image of God because God has no image, right? God doesn't need that law, right? Why does we need a law saying that we can't make an image of God, says Heschel, and he, write, and he says, God has an image, and that is you. The, one of the, if not the last book published by Heschel was a book of translation of his poetry. The title of the book is God's Ineffable Name, colon, Man. God's Ineffable, Unpronounceable Name, Man. Right? It's, a group, it's a group of poems that Heschel wrote in Yiddish. Heschel wrote Yiddish poetry in, 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 in Warsaw and in Vilna, 
and continued, I guess, although I, I, we have the poetry from the early, from his early life. You may not make, says Green, interpreting Heschel, you may not make the image of God because you are the image of God. The only medium in which you can make God's image is the medium of your entire life. And that is precisely what we are commanded to do. You have to make yourselves into God's images. You have to work on it, as I said, so that people who see you in the street will say, ah, there's a, there's a God's image. If you can imagine someone saying that. If we can change the discourse and the way people think about one another and what they think is significant, right? Everything you do, everything you say, each moment and the way you use are all part of the way you build God's image. To take anything less than a full living human being, like a canvas or a piece of marble, and call it the image of God would be to diminish God and to lessen God's image. So the lesson, the lesson of Shavuot, our encounter with God at Sinai, our receipt of the Torah, is that we are required, there's a claim on us in this relationship that we embody those principles that are articulated and that we try our best to bring God's presence in, in the world through our behavior, through our ethics, through our religion. It's certainly possible for people to reflect godliness even if they're not observant Jews and even if they're not Jewish, for sure, right? Because it's about virtue and Religion becomes a delivery system for our learning how to, uh, how to aspire to a life of virtue. So we're invited through the revelation of Torah to together to pursue this life and hopefully to change the world around us for the better. We certainly need it. Chag Sameach. Yeah, now you get to drink some water. Yeah. What's your name, by the way? This is Rosa. 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 The word mensch. Ah, oh, very nice.
all important, but there's something that I'm But Rabbi Chaim, is it is this not the but is this not the Musser movement? Wouldn't you say this is the Musser movement? Yes. So so uh, so the in the 19th century uh, in in Lithuania uh, a movement developed for ethical piety. Uh, in, in an interesting way, I sometimes think of the Musser. I just want to give permission for those that need to go that there's cookies and uh, dairy cookies right out here in Hall of Builders. I also want to thank um, our program director, Amanda Harrison, for all of her hard work. <laughs> and I want to say, I, I want to let people ask some more questions, but I also just publicly want to extend our gratitude to Rabbi Chaim for a beautiful, beautiful lecture. And I hope everyone heard, as I did, the lessons of both humility and the imperative to be agents of God in this world so that we can bring God's presence in this world, as you certainly did tonight. Thank you. And I, and I don't want that to mean that for those who want to answer questions and if you're willing to, to continue engaging in conversation. Chag Sameach, everyone.